Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hey, Neil. This Thursday, September 15th, Neil. 2016. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lives blog, GTC Honors, Living Lives, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in South Florida. And the show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lives blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our new main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Many of you know that we've been trying in every way to get the word out to all distressed homeowners and lawyers and not completely accomplishing our goals. At the the suggestion of several of our readers, we started exploring other options on how to help consumers, uh, borrowers, and lawyers who represent them. And I want to announce that we will shortly be offering paralegal services for the production of notices, letters, pleadings, lawsuits, discovery, and so forth. Uh, While these services are actually directed at attorneys, um, in other words, where we perform the back office function, pro se litigants will be able to access these services as well with important caveats, which is mainly make sure you have a lawyer look at something before you use it. More cases are coming out favoring borrowers than ever before, but we still have a long road ahead. Tonight we're joined by two people, I think by two people. If I'm not here. I have Stephen, you're there? Oh, yeah, okay. I'm sorry, Neil. I have a little difficulty getting here. I'm sorry. All right. So we have two people, as I expected. Uh, Stephen Wright, attorney in Connecticut and who has been a guest on the show before, and Bill Patello, a private investigator and forensic analyst who has also been on the show. The focus tonight is a chapter in what I call the greatest economic crime in history, and it involves something called off-balance sheet transactions 
and the way that J.P. Morgan Chase effectively declared itself owner of perhaps as much as a trillion dollars in loans when all of them had already been sold by WAMU before its bankruptcy and receivership. The interesting thing about Chase is that um, we, we entitled this episode Paper Chase. Chase was uh, basically following the model of the rest of the industry. They used paper in lieu of the truth. They used paper in in place of reality, and it worked. You're going to hear some things tonight on this show that's probably going to make your blood boil. Um, there have been thousands, tens of thousands of foreclosure, maybe hundreds of thousands of foreclosures as a result of Chase claiming ownership of loans that had been originated by Washington Mutual, which we call WAMU, um, even though Chase never had a single document uh, and never participated in a single transaction in which it purchased any loans from the WAMU estate. The entire WAMU estate was around $2 billion, including all its branches. It had originated over a trillion dollars, according to Richard Schopp, the FDIC receiver. It originated more than a trillion dollars in residential mortgage loans. And courtesy of uh, what we'll be uh, describing later uh, of off-balance sheet transactions, some of those loans have uh, kind of disappeared uh, effectively. Stephen Wright went to Trumbull High School, Florida State University, and Western New England College of Law, where he graduated in 1980, which makes him almost as old as me. Okay. So... We are not talking about a newcomer in the practice of law. We're talking about a litigator with experience. He is a lecturer in the Commercial Law League of America, a former faculty member of the College of the State Bar in Texas, and a current member of the Connecticut Bar, and obviously a previous member of the Texas Bar. He's lectured and written on workouts, which... We all know the banks run from now, whereas before that was their primary goal when a loan went bad. Collection of judgments, debtor-creditor relations, the Uniform Commercial Code, and bankruptcy. Bill Patello, licensed private investigator and a forensic analyst who has done work for many people who are readers of my blog, as well as many other people. He's done some really excellent work, including something recently that happened in Connecticut, which will be interesting to, to hear about, where the judge kind of called a timeout on the basis of what Bill had uncovered. Bill's done some very good work in helping many people fight off fraudulent foreclosures, and while he performs forensic analysis and reviews. He's also a licensed private investigator, which gives him access to resources that might not be otherwise available, or at least to many. 
So, going completely off topic, Bill, I'll put you on the spot. Um, sure. Just to start off, I assume you're aware by now of the pressure that Senator Elizabeth Warren is putting on FBI Director Comey to explain why he failed to prosecute bankers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> before we yeah, get I, I, the illegal, before we get to the illegal activities of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, I thought you might want to comment on that, and specifically if you think the Justice Department gave bankers a pass even though they had committed crimes. Well, I, it's it's very clear that the Justice Department has been turning a blind eye to much of this for a long period of time. I've, I've uh, over the last six, seven years of doing what I do, um, I've shared repeatedly information that I come across that's very uh, eye-opening to say the least, which... Uh, usually falls on deaf ears and 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 I hear crickets. I to this date I haven't had um, any formal responses coming back to me from the Department of Justice or any of the attorney generals or anything when I uh, put some of this this hard uh, irrefutable evidence right under their noses. They just don't seem to want to do anything about it. Yeah, my experience is that uh, some law enforcement people contact me. They act real interested, and then they go dark. <laughs> That's and exactly my experience. It's over. So yeah. maybe Elizabeth <clears throat> Warren will have more success than we did, but I certainly found things that I thought were crimes uh, all the way up at the top of these banks, and I think that the American public in general on some level knows that this wasn't just negligence. These were crimes that were committed by the main investment banks uh, on Wall Street, uh, or what we call Wall Street. They're not all located there. And uh, uh, I just thought I'd bring it up just to stir the pot a little. So, yeah, well, I'll Steven, stir it a little bit more. Um, you know, yeah. maybe they maybe they don't think they can win them. Because we all saw what the Second Circuit did when they reversed the big fine against Bank of America and basically redefined uh, the elements of fraud and said that there wasn't enough there to uh, to, to sustain the case. And um, so, um, <clears throat> you know, that's the kind of law they're going to be making that's going to really turn around and, and, and bite <clears throat> bite the wrong ass later on down the road, so to speak. Right, because when they do want to prosecute, they'll have created law that would uh, allow the the uh, defendants to escape. I mean, we saw you on the West Coast in the, the investigation that there was a lot of bad acts but no crimes. I mean, well, geez, good God. <clears throat> really? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm of the same mind, and I keep reminding people that in the savings and loan scandal that happened in the 80s, more than 800 people went to jail. And that was a fraction of the size of what happened or what blew up in 2008. So, um, uh, so my conclusion... sure that'll never happen again. <laughs> yeah, my, my conclusion is uh, that um, our government is either in fear of the banks or is just owned by them, um, or possibly both. 
So now that I've done my philosophizing, let's get back to the point. J.P. Morgan Chase acquisition of WAMU and their claim that they uh, uh, own loans that were originated by Washington Mutual. And um, I know we're going to talk about off-balance sheet transactions, so given my background, let me give the audience a definition of off-balance sheet uh, transactions. Uh, there was actually a guy by the name of Abraham Briloff, B-R-I-L-O-F-F, who wrote a book in the 1960s. That was back when I was studying auditing and accounting and business. Uh, he wrote a book called Unaccountable Accounting. And they, the, um, uh, the board, I'll just call it that, that passes rules on the uh, what goes on balance sheets and what should be on income statements and so forth and how transactions should be recorded, came up with a, it opened the door for transactions to occur without being recorded or reported even by a public company. And they called these off-balance sheet transactions. An off-balance sheet transaction is one in which the, in this case, the bank says that nothing real happened and they kind of put it in limbo until they want to bring it back and foreclose on a loan or whatever. Um, in reality, these off-balance sheet transactions are paper or fictitious trading activity which enables them to create their own version of their profits, their assets, and their liabilities, etc. It's Brilloff said that the creation of this category would eventually bring the economy to a grinding halt because of the obvious ability of public companies and private companies who are uh, uh, reporting for tax purposes and so forth to just create a, a category where it, it doesn't count until we say so. So Bill uh, Patello, uh, if I say Patello, it's because I got used to saying it that way, and that's not his name, Patello. But now I'm tra retraining myself. He did a bunch of uh, investigation analysis and research, as did I, on this whole thing with Washington Mutual. Washington Mutual went broke. It went broke because it had no assets, and it got to the point where it had a lot of liabilities because they had agreed to repurchase loans that went bad, and they had underwritten loans that couldn't do anything except go bad. So they went into bankruptcy, which then involved a U.S. bankruptcy trustee, and the FDIC closed 
Washington Mutual and placed them in receivership with Richard Shop, S C H O P P E, I think, um, who is in Texas. Um, um, as the receiver. And um, what what happened is, like in most cases where a bank goes into receivership, some bank is encouraged to come in as the the successor and they take over the operations for either no money or next to no money. In, in the case of Chase, it was effectively no money. Uh, the purchase price was $2 billion, but the, they acquired a share of uh, a $6.5 billion tax refund, which actually made their net cost a minus figure because they got a little over $2 billion in the um, uh, tax refund. So all of a sudden we see Chase foreclosing on WAMU loans, not just as servicer, but as the actual creditor, the owner of the loan. And we see an affidavit that pops up from Richard Shop saying um, that Chase acquired all the loans of Washington Mutual uh, by operation of law when they took over WAMO. Well, he later retracted that, and it doesn't make any difference because Bill has found out, just like I did, like I suspected, he found out, that all the WAMU loans had already been sold. Bill, take it from there. <laughs> well, well, thanks, Neil. I, you know, this has been an ongoing effort of uh, researching this particular fact pattern for probably almost seven years now, uh, and essentially um, the tens of thousands of, of foreclosures that have probably occurred to date, where Chase has come in with. Um, uh, the story that they own it as the creditor lender um, has is the only leg to stand on with that argument is the purchase and assumption agreement that they've waved around for years, uh, saying that uh, that document gives them uh, the right as the owners that they they bought it for that. Well, <clears throat> clearly it's it's become very um, well known in the public domain that no schedule of assets uh, was ever produced uh, in the quick takeover on September 5th, 2008, showing exactly what it was specifically that Chase acquired and purchased. And that was a requirement to the PAA that at some point when the dust settled, the, uh, the FDIC originally wanted and, was, and Chase agreed to produce a schedule of all the loans that were there because as you mentioned Robert Schaaf, he has testified that they don't have any idea what it was that was on WAMU's books or what WAMU owned. They just did a massive, uh, or the FDIC didn't have the capability of taking on a massive data dump of everything that was in WAMU's systems. So they just they just gave it every, everything to Chase and said, look, if we ever need anything or we need, we need uh, evidence or proof of any loans or anything, we'll just get it from you. But they have no idea what was in there.
and uh, lo and behold, no schedule was ever produced. Well, why is that? You'd think after all these years, uh, there has to be some uh, inventory there to to show what was on the books of Washington Mutual Bank. Well, the the reason why it doesn't exist is because there wasn't anything on the books of Washington Mutual Bank. It was parked. Uh, and or I shouldn't say parked, but everything uh, on these loans, for the most part, was securitized through WAMU's off-balance uh, sheet activities, as you mentioned, and they were using non-bank subsidiaries uh, to underwrite and um, and sell the securities, such as Washington Mutual Mortgage Securities Corp., Washington Mutual Asset Acceptance Corp., uh, Washington Mutual Preferred Funding. Um, all of these non-bank subsidiaries. And if you look at the the uh, press release that came out right upon the seizure, J.P. Morgan Chase even admits that they did not acquire any of the assets or liabilities of those non-bank subsidiaries. So essentially they decided, or someone up, upstairs decided, that they were, uh, were going to steamroll ahead, absent any documentation to show that they own these things, and just state that they do and uh, foreclose uh, as, as the beneficiary or the owner of these loans um, and, and just wave that PAA around. Well, now that I have uh, been researching this for so many years and I've handled cases all across the United States, uh, the evidence is coming in from all these different cases uh, with the same exact fact pattern where Chase is tripping itself up. They're they're uh, providing inconsistent statements uh, under oath and into court. Um, they're actually admitting, often to, uh, outside of court, to the borrowers that their loan is owned by private investors or was sold, and and that Chase just services the loan. Uh, but then when push comes to shove and they proceed to foreclose, they they do a 180, execute a self-serving affidavit or not affidavit, but assignment to themselves and uh, proceed and say, this thing has never been sold by WAMA. We own it. And they're sticking to that story. Well, they're either lying to the courts or they're lying to the borrower. But anyhow, uh, so many of these cases now over the years, as my database is full of them, I can line up all the evidence across the table. And based on what's in the, already in the public domain, such as the uh, Senate investigation on Washington Mutual, there's a lot in the public domain now and in the SEC filings, et cetera, but combined with now this evidence uh, with all these other, other cases, um, it's very clear that uh, Chase's story, uh, the, the, the tread on that tire, so to speak, is, is worn thin. It's just that PAA just doesn't hold water anymore as, as a basis to say they own it. And, and fortunately, uh, we just got a great uh, decision here with Stephen uh, in the Rhode Island case, and I'll, I'll let uh, Stephen, kind of explain a little bit about what the judge thought of this. Stephen, go. Stephen, <laughs> did we lose him? Hey, I'm sorry. I'm. Uh, it took me a second here to switch it around. I put it on uh, mute so they wouldn't uh, interrupt. Ah. Us. I so, um, and I, I can put it on quicker than I can get it off. So, right. uh, so tell us, we, uh, Rhode Island. So, yeah, and so, you know, what Bill said and what Neil said, by the way, and, and by the way, let me just tip my hat again to Neil for uh, 
being a shaft of light in this very dark time that we're going through for a lot of people, and I speak to him often, uh, that he refers to me that are just trying to, you know, kind of swim upstream against this thing, and it's really a, a difficult struggle. But um, in Rhode Island, it's a non-judicial foreclosure state, which is uh, another way of saying a Chase candy store, because because you don't have to first go to the court before you can take somebody's home, um, you probably have a lot more success than you do when you get a little judicial scrutiny. But we were able to get some judicial scrutiny because of declaratory judgment action and some other claims were filed uh, that went along with the theory that Chase can't uh, can't can't be making these demands on, on our, our clients because they don't own the note. And Chase came fired back and said, we do own the note. And they wised up to the fact that the uh, purchase and assumption agreement had no schedule to it. And the FDIC published, uh, made a publication that there was no schedule. And, and they now show up with what they call uh, bearer paper, you know. And it has a right. Cynthia Riley endorsement on it with no date. And interestingly, when I... Th- <laughs> when I deposed the Chase representative, um, he could not tell me when the when the endorsement went on. But we all know that, and Bill will correct me on the day, that I think Cynthia Riley left in 06, right? Yeah, November uh, November of 06, correct. Okay, and Chase went down, and I mean Chase Wamu went down in September of 08, the P&A is September of 08, and she testified that she wasn't an employee after, what, 10 or something like that? Yep, November or November 11th of 06, I believe. Yeah, so, you know, there's a little something going on here, and, it's, you know, there's enough, there was enough to create an issue of fact, and now we're on to the evidence. But, um, you know, getting a little granular on it, and, you know, you, you've commented on this often, that, when we were trying to when we were trying to work out a stipulation of fact before we go to trial, um, we're trying to get the Chase to stipulate that they don't know when the endorsement went on because that was the testimony of their designated rep, and they have to quote think about it. So um, <laughs> you know, I'd have to think about it too, I guess, if I were them. But um, so that's kind of interesting stuff, and. Bill has pretty much pinned down the fact that that endorsement went on just about after the Michigan Supreme Court told Chase that just because you got a P&A agreement is not proof that you own these notes. And now they're claiming to be holders of, you know, bearer paper and claiming the rights of a, you know, a holder and not a holder in due course. And interesting, not claiming any rights under FIREA or Dench Doom, which every bank in the world did when they bought up failed assets back in the savings and loans. So it's kind of all kind of mysterious, and we continue to drill down on it. And um, hope to have some fun in November. So, Bill, what happened with that Connecticut case where after the judge heard your evidence, he uh, declared a pause in the trial? Uh, yeah, the last I the last I know, they were gearing up for trial, and I came in sort of in the eleventh hour, and 
produced uh, some of the, the same uh, evidence and opinions that I, I rendered here in uh, Rhode Island. And then the uh, judge called the time out and issued a continuance. And really, you know, this stuff, when it comes to discovery, um, I've seen enough now to know kind of where the bodies are buried. And <laughs> I can point and help clients and assist the attorneys to say, listen, here's, here are their servicer systems that they were using. And here's exactly what this, these systems should show. And if they produce those uh, certain screenshots and everything within those systems, it provides all the evidence you need to show that Washington Mutual, what they were doing behind the scenes. And what I now have, you know, have compiled in all these cases is and they're getting smart. They're trying to come in and and alter, uh, you know, really, at least that is what it appears to be. They're altering the internal data by showing the start dates of the loan transfer histories beginning after the FDIC takeover, when, if that loan was originated by WAMU and, you know, any time prior to seizure, there's, there's a tracking mechanism that Washington Mutual and all the banks would use to track the investors or who owns these loans. Well, they've produced in other cases very incriminating evidence to show that their story is it, it's not true. It, they, they show investor codes. They show that, the, that these things were sold to private investors. Well, now they're, they're wising up and they're starting to come in and, and uh, not provide, and, and they're withholding the, these documents. And so once you, once you start to apply some pressure, and you, whether you have to compel the judge to produce these specific documents, uh, they're just not complying because if they did so, uh, they're dead in the water. They're essentially admitting to <laughs> that their story is, just doesn't hold water. And, uh, and so now that's, that's where I'm usually working with the attorneys and the clients that I have to say, listen, uh, you don't need me necessarily over the years, you know, clients would come and say, listen, you've got to find this trust. Why well, no WAMU securitized it, you know, and, and name a trust or show me where, what the trust is. And I don't think that that is necessarily that important anymore to actually identify a trust because uh, I think there's enough information to show that, that this thing was sold and securitized and here's where to find the proof of it and here's where to apply the pressure. Well, let me piggyback on that and tell you that my investigation has led me to the irrevocable conclusion that the securitization that they say happened never happened. Um, that all of the trusts were proprietary entities created as part of the investment bank, and uh, they were just paper and ink. They never had a bank account. They never had any assets. The uh, the securities that were supposedly issued by these proprietary entities masquerading as remic trusts were sold to investors who probably should have looked closer, um, and the investors paid money, and they assumed that the money went to the uh, remic trust, but it never did. So the remic well, trust. No. <laughs> It, it it never did, but you know when you say that, you know these investors, uh, you know clearly were asleep at the wheel or whoever was in charge of reviewing these documents. It, to this day, it it still amazes me that you have 
investors, whether they be pension funds or whomever was in charge of handling the money, investing billions of dollars with these parties when there's evidence, plenty of it in the uh, SEC filings by Washington Mutual that they they would claim as a risk factor in their prospectuses that they were not going to endorse notes, that they were not going to create assignments, that they essentially were not going to document any of these sales transactions, and 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 yet these uh, investors are putting up billions of dollars, knowing that that their their interest in if these. Uh, securities were backed by assets <laughs> they weren't perfecting their interests and why anybody would invest <laughs> knowing that and then and then you also have language in the SEC filings where Washington Mutual says look we're going to we we reserve the right to dip into this pool of money you know the, that that the trust is going to be the alleged trust is going to see this cash flow coming through and we have the right to toy around with it and invest it and play with it and if we win and do well with our investments we get to keep it but guess what if we lose you know you're you're going to be possibly out your money so why anybody would invest in this stuff is beyond me <laughs> well the uh, uh having spent uh, four years on Wall Street in various capacities, including bond trading uh, and and institutional sales. I can tell you why. The uh, investment banks went to the rating agencies and did their magic, taking these guys out on hunting trips and so forth, and uh, uh, they got a AAA rating. So anybody, even who was restricted in the type of investment they could make, anybody could invest. Then they went to the insurance companies who looked at the AAA rating and went, well, if it has a AAA rating, sure, we'll insure it. And, um, and they did that. It is, what's amazing is, and the whole reason why I left Wall Street, in the one place where the, the most untrustworthy people work, they base their work on trust of each other, knowing they can't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, um, and, and, and frankly, all the incentives uh, are there for that to happen. So if you're the manager of the fireman's uh, retirement fund or pension fund, you get a uh, you get paid a salary and you get paid bonuses for outperforming the market. So, um, if uh, if you're getting at the at the moment three point seven five percent average on your investment, which a lot of them were back uh, ten years ago. Or, or if they were doing great, it would be four and a quarter. Uh, and Merrill Lynch comes to you and says, I can give you, you know, 4.9. They were jumping at it because that meant a bigger bonus for them. And after all, if, I can't, if you can't trust Merrill Lynch, who can you trust? And the answer is nobody. So... You know, just going back to an editorial comment on my part, I guess, is that I'm sure you're aware of the 
recent uh, unsealing of the case out in California federal court where the Department of Justice and the FBI came in in that case, and they, they admitted that they can't trace and track ownership of any of this stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that being the case, I mean, that's a litmus test of pretty much what's going on all over in, in all of these cases. They can't trace or track anything. Um, so so what do you do with that? Is that is that the borrower's fault? Uh, does that still allow them to, you know, should they still be allowed to come in and claim ownership to something where no one knows who owns it anymore? I mean, that's really the big dilemma we've got. Well, um, if you hear the bank tell it, something like 80 million Americans woke up one morning and decided to defraud the finance industry. Oh, um, yeah, predator, predatory borrowing, yeah. <laughs> predatory yeah. borrowing, correct. Yeah. And um, there, there's there's no question in my mind that what this entire thing was very well thought out they they did some pilot runs in 1996 when MERS was created and they realized that they're probably going to get away with it and they were right because what they really did was force the investors to be lenders because that's where the money came from when people went to the closing table, but they didn't know that. And they forced the borrowers to be part of a fraudulent security scheme. As soon as they signed that note and mortgage, their uh, financial ID, their reputation, their signature was then used to make a lot of money for a bunch of intermediaries. In most cases, in most cases, the amount of money made on each signature was in excess of the amount borrowed, which is, of course, impossible unless you add the element of theft. Then it becomes possible. <laughs> so the... What what really happened here is, as you just discussed, that, you know, WAMU said we're going to keep this money in a pool. Well, that was a dark pool, and it was a dynamic dark pool, dynamic because there was always money going in and always money going out. And it was commingled. All the money from all the trusts, from all of the so-called trusts, from all of the investors, went into the same pool. And it wasn't just WAMU who had access to that. Chase did too. And what Chase did was it, advanced, it did what they called servicer advances on loans that were not performing, in other words, where the borrower was not making payments. So Chase would dip into this dark pool and measure out the right amount and give it to an investor telling him, here's the return that we promised you when you bought the mortgage bond, which everybody but the investor knew was completely worthless. So what Chase was doing was making those advances because they had written into the pooling and servicing agreement 
for each of the so-called trusts that they could recover the servicer advances because they were called servicer advances even though the money was paid out of the dark pool, and the dark pool consisted of what? The investor's money. But Chase was wrote into the deal that it could recover the advances it made as a servicer to cover non-performing loans. And that's why you have across the country so many foreclosures that took five, six, eight, even ten years because Chase wouldn't foreclose until they had exhausted the differential between the advances and what the property was worth. Then they would foreclose and take the money. But they still covered over the uh, payments to many of the investors unless they were sued, in which case they did a settlement. So the whole thing was very well thought out from the standpoint of stealing money from the investors, keeping the fact that the investors' money had been stolen from them, and forcing, in essence, a lender, the investors, didn't want to be lenders and refused to be that. They were supposed to be acquiring loans, not originating. Forcing the investors on the one side and the homeowners as borrowers on the other side into a loan contract that neither one of them wanted or would have accepted had they known the truth. And this is something I wrote about 10 years ago, and it comes under the doctrine for those who want to do the research, uh, mainly from tax law, the step transaction doctrine, but it's used in other commercial circumstances, and the single transaction doctrine basically says that if it weren't for the investors, the borrowers wouldn't have had their so-called loan, and if it wasn't for the borrowers, the investors wouldn't have had their so-called investment. And, and that's the way it worked. And everybody in the middle who acted as intermediaries, they, like Bill said, they, through self-proclamation, made themselves king and said, we own these loans, except, as we found out in litigation that involved Chase, if there was any liability attached to the loan, then we don't have anything to do with that loan. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So... That's what they did here, and I, I really want to commend both of you for continuing the, uh, uh, the pressure. And I want to suggest to everybody who's listening that I think the Chase Wamu thing, as Bill has kind of alluded to, I think the Chase Wamu thing has very little tread left on the tire. And if you have a foreclosure or have recently had a foreclosure involving Chase, uh, you might very well find out your chances of winning against Chase may be better than many of the other uh, uh, banks or servicers. Uh, also, if Aquin is involved, I think you'll see the same thing. So, Stephen, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. 
tonight. Uh, the information on both gentlemen is on my site, and you can always uh, find it by uh, on this show on Blog Talk Radio. See you next week. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Neil. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.